0: There's a good case of a 2020 hindsight, and um, the second doctor always has a leg
1: up on the first doctor in these cases. Unfortunately, they couldn't really go too far. He had 30 DUIs, and they thought that that went really play well for a jury. People who work in emergency departments need to understand that loose
0: lips sink ships.
2: It's Greg Henry, Rick Bucata, and this month we have a guest. It is Mike Weinstock. Mike Weinstock is no, is no stranger to those of you who have been following Risk Management Monthly. He's been on before. He is the famous author in bouncebacks, and we've done a Bounce Back uh, episode, essentially, here on Risk Management Monthly. Uh, Mike, it's great to have you with us again. And again, for a guy from Ann Arbor, Michigan, to say something good about somebody from um, uh, Columbus, Ohio, it's a cold day in hell, and by the way,
1: it is a cold day in hell. It's cold down here too. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's not well, cold listen. here. I got a hundred degrees going on. It's eight o'clock in the morning. We've been having some nasty, nasty uh, heatness here, so uh, I can share some of that with you, uh, given the fact that you're having some cold issues back there. The uh, theme of this issue is um, why patients sue, and uh, Mike has gotten together for us uh, some. Recordings regarding people who have uh, potentially uh, thought of suing. And the idea here is to kind of flush this out, give some conversation with regards to are there things that we can do? Are there red flags? And how can we preempt uh, any uh, litigation? Mike, why don't you?
2: Before the cynicism sets in, (laughs) let me just say I know we have a lot of listeners who are going to say, yeah, we know why they sue, they want the money. And I think what we're going to find uh, in the discussion today, and certainly what I found in my med legal career, is it's more complex than that, and there are a lot of reasons people sue.
1: That's exactly right. And, and, and today, what I wanted to do is, is try to look at two main questions. The one is, can we identify patients who are likely to sue, and then can we proactively address some of the potential reasons that they might sue later, and we're going to do that in two ways. One is by looking at the literature, and then secondly, I've collected three patients, and all of these patients had a misdiagnosis, and I think we'll be surprised at some of the decisions that they made regarding how they reacted to that misdiagnosis. So, Mike, why don't we review the uh, the first paper that you have here? Okay, so the first paper is by Vincent, who is in Lancet, and we'll have the references in the written summary. It's called, Why Do People Sue Doctors? A Study of Patients and Relatives Taking Legal Action. And what they did, and this was not the best study that's ever been accomplished in the history of the world, but what they did is they looked at 227 patients, and 70% of them were seriously affected by the incidents in the emergency department. And what they found is, of these 220 patients that, 27 patients that have sued, that there are four main themes that emerged as far as the reasons for the litigation. One is, as they responded, concern with standards of care, both the patients and the relatives wanted to prevent similar incidents in the future. Number two, a need for an explanation to know how the injury happened and why. Number three was compensation for actual losses, pain, and suffering to provide care in the future for an injured person. And then number four, accountability, a belief that the staff or organization should have to account for their actions. So what they found is actually a little different than what I think us in the trenches would initially assume, that people just want to get some cash out of it. They want to want to punish the doctor. These people actually had some other answers for that. Greg uh, I know that you've had some, some incidents. I know there was one patient who had uh, uh, a misdiagnosis and you guys had agreed to recognize that patient by putting a plaque on the wall and that was enough for them. So some of this actually rings true with some of our experience. I think Rick has a little different take on this story. When patients answer the questions, sometimes they don't give the exact accurate reason for wanting to sue. What is your thoughts on that, Rick?
0: Well, you know, the, uh, there was an editorial regarding this paper. Uh, first of all, this is a British study, and so the things are a little different over there. In fact, one of the things they point out is that in Britain, if you uh, meet certain criteria, you can sue without really any financial risk to yourself, and that uh, uh, under other conditions, it becomes very costly for you to sue. So it's not exactly like the U.S. contingency system. But in the um, editorial, they did point out that this is a survey and that many times people respond to surveys by giving answers that you think uh, people want to hear and I don't think most people are going to say well the fact is I wanted the money they're, they're going to you know I think that's going to be one of the issues for sure but as you mentioned they they always say well we'd like to prevent this from happening well you can prevent it from happening without getting the money you can also be told what happened without getting the money but the money is always there and I think that it, it, we, we have to be a little bit careful about how we look at um, surveys because they point out that there are many other examples where surveys really don't seem to tell what people really are going to do, well, like when they're in the voting booth or other kinds of things like that.
1: Well, one thing well you know, over the this, years... Go ahead. I was going to say, one thing they brought up in the editorial was the number two reason, a need for an explanation. Well, do you really need to go and get a lawyer and initiate it? two or three-year legal process to get an explanation as to what happened? How about calling the the ER, ca- calling the 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 or setting up a meeting and defining and it? So they brought that out in the editorial. If that was really one of the main reasons for litigation, there's a lot easier way to get an explanation than initiating a lawsuit. Right. They point out the
0: NIH has um, mechanisms in England for – reviewing records and uh, making this stuff available they also point out that the records are um, available to the patient they could take them to the uh, uh, another expert and have them reviewed so um, it gets a little bit disingenuous when they say well the big reasons are we want to prevent it if you want to prevent it you could go to the medical board <laughs> and get the person's license uh, or get them censured but that's but paying money doesn't necessarily prevent uh, uh, recurrences I guess they really want um, some kind of formal acknowledgement at the hospital. What are we going to do to prevent this from happening to somebody else?
2: Let's, let's put this in perspective. Number one, the British have less than one twenty-fifth the amount of medical legal action uh, than we do in the United States. Secondly, the British abandoned uh, advocacy law on this issue years ago. They don't have a battle of experts. What they do, what the what the court can request, is a professor or a, a big name in that particular specialty from the National Health Service, an expert, to look at the at the question, and see if there was a violation of the standard of care. It's not a battle of experts. And lastly, the British are not into the lottery mentality here. I'm going to win 11 million bucks or 20 million bucks. They're into something called sufficiency, which means, is this family or is this person sufficient? Uh, and in the British system, the health care is already paid for. They have a certain social safety net, which is uh, more complete than ours with regard to some of these issues. So the amount of cash that ever changes hands is nothing like we see in the United States. So I I'm not sure that the comparable situation exists between uh, British and U.S. uh, malpractice, either the reasons for filing malpractice or the actual way the systems work.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, this is is sort of soft science. Um, I will say that there have been several other studies that actually were cited in the editorial that had similar results to this. But I think we still can take some things away from this, even though if it's not something not something that's exactly proven, and and I think that uh, the second point, that need for an explanation, is something that's really important to give to a patient. Uh, as you spoke about initially, one of my main interests is bounce backs, but of course more important than that is to prevent a bounce back in the future and then to... to figure out what do you do when a bounce back occurs and probably one of the most important things because most of these occur at the same hospital, just geographically patients usually go back to the same hospital, is that, well, you see a patient and because there are a certain amount of, of, of just uh, a, a static that people are going to come back to the, the ER, well, you see a patient that's come back the last thing you want to do is to somehow blame that doctor or even insinuate what did they do or why did they do that or ask the patient. I think that giving an explanation for what had happened initially to the patient, because you can usually extrapolate from the chart what had happened, maybe that would be one way that we could proactively address that patient's concern. The second doctor could explain what happened initially and how the doctor had looked for a certain condition that just hadn't manifested itself yet.
2: By the way, I think this idea of getting uh, information is critical. A lot of times the family was sitting out in the waiting room. They never saw all the effort and visits and work that went into the care of that patient. Uh, That's why I don't really mind Patients uh, one or two being in the room with the, with the uh, or family members being in the room with the patient simply because they're then getting a chance to see the kind of activity, the amount of time and effort and all the other things that go on to taking care of, uh, of any sick patient. So I, I think that this getting information, it's theirs anyway. They have a right to it. We should make that easy not hard. And, you know, every time we've done with this, uh, I've done this, met with families, um, I think they've been appreciative of the fact that we've opened up the books, talked about anything, and I always offer to give them any and all of the records. They can take it to someone else and have them look at it. And I think stating that up front, that you're willing to have your uh, facilities work examined, goes a long way in reassuring people that they got good care.
0: But there's another issue here. Um, you're assuming that everybody's doing a wonderful job and um, everybody's being great. But the fact of the matter is is that there are uh, situations where the family is with the patient and they do see that there's an inadequate amount of uh, pain uh attention to pain. There's prolonged delays for the uh, results of uh, uh, x-rays and uh, those kinds of things that uh, a nurse gets snippy with the patient. They also can see the negative side just as easily as they can see the positive side. So I think it's a little, we need to be realistic and say not everybody has a terrific experience in the emergency department. And sometimes the family basically can act as a patient's advocate. I was, um, often, um, Impressed by how often some of the staff wants no family in the room, when in fact every person who uh, is a patient would love to have their family in the room, and so would you know the nurses and doctors if they were a patient.
2: Yeah, no, I I I think you're right, Rick. I I think that uh, those people who are afraid of having family in the room are not meeting their obligations to the family. They're not providing service. you know we have to we have to understand that people have a right to this this information and um i think rather than fight it don't put up your hands when there's a tsunami coming build a surfboard and uh and ride this one because i think the patients can be your best advocate if if something comes up
1: we've all had uh situations where patients will come back on a second visit and maybe they were seen at our own ed or at a different one They'll tell us, well, the first doctor didn't even examine me. And you look at the chart, and there's a 10-point physical exam. Well, unless that doctor completely made it up, which I'm sure happens sometimes, I think the patients just in the whole experience, they don't really realize what has happened to them. They are so concentrating on giving the history that they don't realize the doctor has listened to their lungs while they're giving history, for example. Mike,
2: that study was done. They actually yeah. interviewed people one week after their visit to see what they remembered. Did they look in your eyes? Did they look in your ears? The patients were less than 50% right unless it involved a rectal or a pelvic. That they, <laughs> were, they were pretty correct on. But did they say they listened to both sides of the chest, the front and the back? Uh, you might as well have flipped a coin. So I, th- I think patients are not a good indicator of what actually happened with that doctor in a room.
0: Although I must admit, I think that um, there is, especially in the charting mechanisms that we have now, the way to create a record that is larger than life. And um, frankly, I've heard nurses com- uh, acknowledge that this doctor you know, doesn't examine the patients. And um, I think that we have to l- listen to them because I, they're not idiots and... Um, I think that it behooves a doctor to make it clear that he's doing an examination, that he's checking, that, he's, that, he's, that he should be talking during that exam. I think that's one of the skills that physicians learn over time, that I got to do the show. Greg, you've talked about that many, many times, and we generally refer to that show when we're examining a kid because the mother's standing across the other side of the, uh, uh, of the child's bed. But we need to also do that with um, adults as well.
2: Rick, I think you're talking about a separate problem, which is called lying, and that's a moral and ethical problem. If you've got a doctor who is turning out a uh, level five report and did a level two exam, that's an ethical and moral issue. That's going to be very difficult to stop. But I think that uh, in general, um, patients are not a good judge of how much examination was done and and what it means. Um, I always like doing neurological exams on patients because they love all the bizarre things that we do, and sometimes that impresses them. But but, uh, you're right. There are going to be those people who they push a magic button on the computer and it spits out the normal, complete examination, which would take all of us 20 minutes to do, and they were only in the room for five minutes. And I think that this is a, uh, this is a problem when billing becomes the key motivator for what's
1: done. Well, I think that's an important point with electronic medical records. It's so easy to have this huge comprehensive exam. But I want to make sure listeners and everybody realize that that doesn't help you. It doesn't help you in any way. It doesn't help you for all other systems negative if there is a problem. And I think that putting that huge exam with all the reflexes, the brachiocephalic reflex and all these things that you didn't do, there's no point of putting that down because it doesn't help you if this thing happens. So I think two two things this program today really will touch on, but, but it's not really focused on, certainly is lying. And then, you know, sometimes there is malpractice. And if there's malpractice, maybe you can prevent a lawsuit by speaking with the patient and all. But... It's the gray zone ones, the ones where it could go both ways that are used to the situation because most of us are, that are listening to this program are trying to do their best. That's why they're listening in the first place. The other thing I think is an excellent point that Greg made is having the family in the room. And they found that having adults, you know, parents in the room when you have a pediatric resuscitation or even an adult resuscitation, but why not have as many people in the room as you can when you're interviewing that patient? because when the patient goes home and says, well, they didn't even listen to my lungs and grandma says, well, yeah, they did because I was sitting right there and I heard them ask you to stop talking because they were going to listen to your lungs. You know, having all these people that are substantiated for the patient, it enables the, the family to, I think, decrease some of that noise that goes around around the patient's head that says, they didn't do this, they didn't do this, they misdiagnosed me because of these reasons, they can talk the, the patient down a little bit because they were there. Well, there is this recurring theme that I think
0: we all need to be aware of because it comes up all the time that patients say, well, the doctor spent two minutes with me kind of thing and you hear that re- repetitively and obviously in a situation where there's a sp- mistake that has occurred, that is, um, it likes, it's like cause and effect.
2: Well, let's, uh, Mike, let's go into some of these cases and see how we're going to apply what we've been talking about against those specific complaints.
1: Right. That's a good idea. uh, Before we do that, let me just uh, look at that very first question we said, you know, and, and we'll look at the cases in the context of that. Can we identify patients that could Sue later, and I think that we've certainly identified a couple. Some that had had poor communication initially, and I think that's something that can be addressed when they come back, and maybe even addressed proactively. Because I oftentimes have a patient, and they're looking at me. I'm talking, and I I know they're just hearing like on uh on uh the Snoopy the, the Peanuts uh, you know videos wah 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 wah, <laughs> yeah. and they're looking at me, and I know they're not hearing a word I'm saying. And I think that's when you have to sort of back yourself up and say the thing, repeat the thing, repeat what you had told them, and maybe even have them repeat it back to you to make sure that they understand what has been said. So as far as the communication thing, that's obviously really, really important. And I think that you can proactively recognize which patients are more likely to, to have a problem with that. So in light of that, I'm going to put the first patient So I'm gonna play the first half, for Greg and Rick, I'm gonna play the first half of this, and then we can discuss the care that this patient got, and you guys can predict what she decided to do. So here we go.
3: Julia Isaac, proud mom to Ivory. Early on in 07, she started vomiting, having stomach aches, neck aches, balance problems. We took her to the family doctor, and they couldn't figure anything out. They thought she had the flu. And then in October, we were at Children's at least once or twice a month, and they were constantly telling us there was nothing wrong with her except for the flu. At one point, I was told I was a hypochondriac mom. We had one doctor look at us and say it was a possibility she had a brain tumor, but it was so uncommon it would be worth waiting before we did an MRI or CT. After much fighting, they told us to go ahead and leave the ER and just come back in a few days if the symptoms still presented. We were back two days after that, and they told us to go home. There was nothing they could do. A month later, we were back in St. Ann's. The doctor that was there was really great, and she was like, you know what, I'm going to settle your fears. We're going to do an x-ray and a CT just to rule out anything. X-rays showed nothing. The CT came back, and 15 minutes after they did it, she came over and said, I need you to have a seat. And I said, what's wrong with my baby? And she said, there's a very large mass that's been growing probably since birth. And... If I was told at Children's Hospital that if she had they hadn't have found it, we would have lost her within three months. All the symptoms were there, and even looking back with the new doctors that see her, they say, how could somebody have missed these? The lymph nodes were swollen, her eyes were crossing, the vomiting as soon as she sat up. As she laid her head on a table and sat up, she vomited automatically. There was no reason for that to go on for almost a year before she was diagnosed. They looked at us like, look, you're a new mom. She's only four. They told us to relax and enjoy her as a child and quit being so paranoid. And I expressed, no, this is not my daughter. She does rock climbing. She does bungee jumping. She does, she's active. And now she's laying around doing nothing. This isn't my child anymore.
1: So that's the first patient. This is Julia Isaac, mother of Ivory. was five years old at the time and she had seen multiple doctors, including the emergency department multiple times and her primary care doctor and was eventually diagnosed with a brain tumor. So I'm going to stop the audio there for just a second. I will tell you that uh, all these patients were given the choice to have anonymity with their discussion. All of them chose to say their name right up front because they, they wanted to, to get this information out there. But what are your thoughts on what happened with her, and what she decided to do? Well, um, generally, generally, my view is
0: that um, brain tumors—it doesn't—you don't make, need to make the diagnosis on the first visit. But it sounds like this person had multiple, multiple visits, and so there's always this idea of lost opportunity. And um, you know, I don't know whether it's a benign brain tumor or a, you know, malignant brain tumor. And I don't, certainly don't know from this what this woman has said whether this is um, a case where earlier diagnosis would have changed the outcome or not. And I think that's always one of the issues that g- comes up in brain tumors. Um, but it sounds like she was um, demeaned a bit in terms of uh, what doctors said to her about being... Um, you know paranoid and um, overly concerned and they sounded and she paints a picture of uh, people just shining on the symptoms that were quite real and that uh, didn't take her seriously and I think that that would engender a fair amount of hostility when it turns out that mom who's not a doctor, is right, and all of these other doctors are wrong
2: I think what we've got here is the problem we have two problems we have a science problem, and we have a an acceptability problem within the system. Um, First of all, I'd like to say to that family, um, I can't picture a worse day. If you hung me up and beat me with a club, it'd be better than having something like this in my kid. Uh, They have my sympathy no matter how this thing turned out. Secondly, um, when parents come back complaining, nobody does know their kid like they do. You sort of have to take that seriously. And Notice Mother mentioned, my child's eyes have been crossing. You know, that, I, that's never a good thing as far as I'm concerned. It sounds like there were some legitimate medical findings here that should probably have been picked up upon. Now, I, I don't know everything about the child, but having used to do this for a living, it sounds to me like this child may have a cerebellar pontine angle tumor, uh, which may have been compressing flow uh, in the in the CFS system causing these various symptoms. Um, uh, Mike, you'll let us know what this is in just a minute. But I think that Rick's point about the fact that even if we'd picked it up a little bit earlier, there may have been no difference and no difference in the harm done to the child. But, you know, if you're part of 12 people picked from the, the roles of... Uh, Taxpaying paying citizens, voters in the county, that's how they usually get jurors, you know how it doesn't taste good sometimes? And I think they'd sit there and think, this doesn't taste good. And sometimes that does influence how jurors view these cases.
1: Well, that's why I like this case, because we don't really know that there is malpractice, but we do know that there is a misdiagnosis. And I think it really goes to the heart of what we're trying to talk about today is when there is a misdiagnosis, what do we do about that? And how can we then somehow prevent the litigation, which doesn't really help anybody, as far as the patient certainly? Uh, how can we prevent that in the future? So, uh, with this case, without a doubt, you know, t- telling someone that, or even insinuating that's all in their head, when oftentimes it might be, but you you never want to insinuate that, of course, to the patient because that demeans their 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 their, their worth and and also. You, anytime you stop substantiating, you want to be able to, I think, substantiate the reason they came to the emergency department. So even, you know, the five month old, ten below zero, three a.m. with the ear infection, I really appreciate the fact that you came in. I think it was a good decision to come in. But the good news is, your kid is going to be fine. That's a, bit a viral URI or whatever. You know, if if you start blaming the patient for actually coming to the ED in the first place, that's just a recipe for disaster.
2: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. That uh, we shouldn't, and, and this happens all the time. We'll project our own inadequacies onto the patient because we don't know. <laughs> doesn't mean they don't have anything. And uh, I think you're very. I think it's it's not a good idea in general to make two things in the emergency department a uh, diagnosis of uh, a social problem within the family i.e. overly protective parents, or number two, a psychiatric diagnosis, you're just depressed. Uh, um, I I would leave those to people who have a much bigger view of the patient and the family.
1: So I'll tell you, Greg, you actually were very good with the symptoms, being the neurology expert you are. Uh, The CT actually showed low midline cerebellar or brainstem tumor, with punctate calcifications and expansion of the foramen magnum, that Ooh. was the impression there.
2: Yes, and uh, if you're pushing out your foramen magnum, you're also pushing in on the on the aqueduct of Sylvius, which doesn't do your your uh, CFSF any good. I promise you.
1: Well, let me just. I know we're not really trying to talk too much about the medicine, but you know, I've often thought this is in some ways sort of an easy situation in the sense that. Rick is exactly right. There's not any rush to diagnose this brain tumor—not for three months, but within several days. Certainly, you got a CT, you got an MRI. The MRI doesn't have the radiation risk, and it gives you more information. If you're really concerned about that, why not set that up as an outpatient or talk to it about the patient? Talk to the patient about it specifically. This is a concern. Let's give this a few days or a few weeks. If it doesn't get better, I want to have you go to your primary care doctor and discuss with them further imaging that's going to have less risk and give us more information.
0: Yeah, I think that um, we need to feel more comfortable ordering MRIs in the emergency department. I do believe that um, we're kind of getting a little spooked about all of the radiation concerns we have regarding kids, um, and and probably rightly so, because I think that there's no question that children are the fastest-rising uh, population who are getting cts because now we don't have to sedate kids uh, because these machines are quite fast now and so their threshold has become much lower and there's a there's a reasonable concern about that but i think the idea of getting an mri generally it's available there is no radiation it will give you the answer that you're looking for and but my concern is that we view this test as oh no 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 that's that's um that's kind of a little off-limits from the emergency department. Uh, that, that's not for us to be ordering kind of thing, which I think we
1: need to change our view of that. Yeah, I had a patient the other day, and she had some stroke-type symptoms for 24 hours. It's like she could be admitted or getting an MRI. If you see a totally normal MRI with 24 hours of symptoms, probably that's not from... Something in the brain, Now nothing's 100%, but it certainly makes it much less likely. And the cost of an MRI compared to the cost of a mission, they're not even close.
2: Right. As long as you're referring to the cost of an MRI, not the charge of an MRI, (laughs) which are (laughs) totally different concepts. Um, and, and, And Rick's right. There are certain areas of the body where the CT scan is becoming a test of historical interest only. If you think the uh, uh, spinal cord is being compressed, there is only one test at this point in time, and that's the MRI. Yep. And, and uh, to pretend that you're getting similar information uh, from another test is just a joke. It's a lie. It's interesting we carry on these debates about TPA and stroke when we're talking about 20-year-old technology. And basically, a 20-year-old study, the NINDS trial, using nothing but old technology, you know, I think this is going to become moot (laughs) at some point in time when we realize that that's not the study of choice for these people.
1: Well, I want to talk talk about just briefly about CT scans. My wife, Beth, is a primary care physician, and and we were talking about that this morning. You know, we all want to be cognizant of the risk of radiation, and you've got a six-year-old with abdominal pain for three hours. You don't need to make a diagnosis of appendicitis at that point. How about letting them go home? They still have a pain in 8 or 12 hours. You're still well within the 48 that you have to diagnose appendicitis. Have them come back because almost all those will go away. You've avoided the risk of radiation. You've decreased their emergency department stay. And it's a win-win situation all around. However, if you do have a patient that you are concerned about, just again using the example of appendicitis, and there's a 1 in 2,000 chance you're going to get cancer sometime later in life from the radiation... Is there really less than one in two thousand chance that that person has appendicitis? Now, sometimes there is, and again, sometimes you can defer that test. But I think we have to make sure we don't compensate the other way. And I'm no fan of unnecessary testing in any way, shape, or form for the for the people that have uh, heard the some some of the stuff that I've done. But the fact is, is in this situation, telling a mom she might have a brain tumor, but I'm concerned about giving her too much radiation. You know, it, it just doesn't jive. And, and I think you have to say, if you are concerned about that, what are we going to do to address that in the future?
2: Well, going back to your point on uh, appendicitis, first of all, here in Ann Arbor, you wouldn't get a CT scan on a kid with appendicitis. Thought uh, who are considering appendicitis, you get an ultrasound. Carries no radiation. Uh, you can do two or three of them if you want, without any harm to the child. Um, and the other thing is, if there's reasonable symptomatology, why don't you just take out their appendix? Right. Uh, you know, right. we did that for years, and they, they did just fine. And there is no technology, I don't care which one you pick, that doesn't have a, a miss rate of some percent. Maybe it's 2% or 5%. But you know what? You know, at some point in time, when it looks obvious and they're 16 years old and they're a boy, just take out their appendix uh you you probably can't do anybody any harm all right we're getting off the track here let's hear our let's hear our next case well hold on we gotta we gotta we gotta have
1: you guys uh i I gotta i gotta put you guys on the spot here rick what happened what did she decide to do well you know what my always my answer is always the same
0: (laughs) from every time (laughs) i know that from every time we've done this in every in every setting um so uh, what did she do? Well, you know, I, honestly, I don't have enough information in terms of how many visits she had over what period of time and how gross the um, this mistake was. And I also don't know what the neurosurgeon would have said regarding the, um, had we gotten to it earlier, it would have made an outcome. And I think all of those things are important in terms of deciding what this person would have likely done. So uh, it's hard for me to say because I'm going to say well, I don't have it. I have inadequate
1: information. Fair enough. Greg, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't think that she sued. Uh, I hear the tone in her voice. Um, I think they're going to tell her that uh, the child was going to need the operation no matter what. Uh, it's not like uh, they were going to treat this with a chemical early on or some other point. I think she probably did not sue.
1: Well, I talked to Julie at a a Wendy's restaurant. She had some emotional moments and actually was emotional for both of us during this discussion. And I think you'll be surprised as to what happened and why she decided to do what she did. So here's the rest of the interview. About one minute. So let me jump ahead and ask you some other questions. She's eight years old now.
3: She's eight years old. Uh, She has many complications from the things that have happened to her body. But she goes forward with life with an attitude that we can't let this happen to another family. She said her purpose in life is to make sure that another family never has to go through this.
1: What do you think could have been done different with one of the initial doctors to be able to make the diagnosis earlier?
3: I think the initial the one doctor that said yes, she could have had a brain tumor could have went ahead and did the C T. Even if she didn't one C T and I know it's a lot of radiation would have been minimal if she had nothing to prove she had nothing. But why do,
1: you, why do you think they didn't want to do the, the CT?
3: The words said to me as I was walking out of the ER was, insurance wouldn't pay for it, are you going to pay for it? I did speak with an attorney at one point just to figure out what our rights were, and they said that we had a really good case against the doctors, and if we ever wanted to pursue, please come back to them. And Ivory's words were, how is that going to help us any? And the money taken from Children's Hospital and from the doctors are going to take away from other children that need the money.
1: You had that, made that decision with your daughter?
3: Yes, we did. She was six years old at the time when we made that decision together.
1: Wow. When you spoke with the attorney, what was that, that meeting like?
3: It was intense. It was pretty, they were pushing really hard for us to sue, and I'm like, I don't want to sue. That's not going to do any good. It's going to ruin somebody's life. And my daughter had said that. And she goes, ruining somebody's life is not going to bring back mine. If a parent says something's not right with my child, please Please pursue it and listen.
1: So they decided not to sue the doctor, mostly because the six-year-old talked the mom out of it. You know, I
2: think I'm in love. I I think I (laughs) love that woman. Did you hear what she said? Me getting some money for this doesn't change the outcome, and it takes away money from other kids at Children's Hospital. What an intelligent view of the situation. I'm blown away. Further, Further thoughts on case one? Closing thoughts? Um, Well, I I wish the child well. And, um, you know, sometimes, may my words be kind today, because I may have to eat them tomorrow. And that's exactly what this case is.
1: Okay, second case is a financial analyst. It was in a really nice house. And I actually went and met him at his home. He lives on a golf course. Uh, He's an intelligent guy. But even with that, He had some of the facts of the evaluation a little confused, um, thinking that he got an MRI, that sort of thing, when it was really a CT, for example. But I'm going to play the first half, and then we'll discuss in the second half. And then for our final case, we'll just play it right through. It's pretty short. So here is case number two. This is Don. And he is a man in his 60s, going to discuss what happened with him.
4: I'm Don Carlos. I am currently 69 years old when I'm a financial advisor. In uh, 2007, I discovered that I had osteoarthritis in my right hip and needed a replacement. It was extremely successful. Uh, I was recovering excellent, but on Sunday, I began to experience pains in my upper right chest, but I had no idea what it was, so I called my doctor and he said, go to the emergency room. I was diagnosed there with a gallstone. So they said, well, you'll have to have your gallbladder removed if, if this continues. So they prescribed some pain medication, I think Vicodin, the pain went away and I was fine. Two weeks later on Sunday, the pain again came back, exactly the same pain. But this time I felt a lot worse. So back to the emergency room. In the meantime, I had stopped in to see Dr. Uh, Kelly. Uh, who's a laparoscopic surgeon. He looked at me and said, well, here's the deal. If it comes back, you go to the emergency room, we'll just schedule surgery the next morning. When I went to the emergency room, Dr. Weinshot came in and I told him of my experience. He said, no, I don't think that's the problem. I think you have a blood clot. I think you have a pulmonary embolism. That's that's what it turned out to be. I had to take the Coumadin shots and we had to get the thing right. I had to go to the hospital all the time for, for you know blood tests. But I do know this, we didn't, they didn't get it right and I was having surgery that could have been a, a terrible thing.
1: So what was your experience, uh, just the personal interaction with the first ER physician that you saw?
4: You know, it was just as as I think a typical patient, I, I'm fortunate I don't go to the hospital very often, but I sit there and tell them what's wrong and they sit there and tell me what to do.
1: Did you feel they listened to your concerns and treated you through?
4: I don't think she seemed rushed or, or impersonal. I think she just, sort of came to a conclusion way early I think when you have a, a problem like that and I've looked at it you have you have major surgery and, and you've got something wrong. I mean a blood clot is the, is a major a complication after those kind of surgeries and I don't have, have any idea how she could she could not have at least looked at that
1: at the time to you did her diagnosis seem reasonable
4: the reason that it, that it seemed reasonable, was that in many, I don't know, five years before, my uh, physician had said, gee, you've got gallstones. My brother had had gallstone attack and had had to have his removed. I said, well, okay, you know, this has just shown up.
1: I had no clue. Okay, so that's Don. He's a financial analyst. He had a hip replacement about a month later. He went to the ER with right upper quadrant and some back pain, had a CT scan, showed a gallstone, was diagnosed with cholecystitis or symptomatic choleithiasis and sent to the surgeon. And then he eventually came back about a month later when his pain returned. And the interesting part about this is he called his surgeon and the surgeon said, go to the ER, get admitted, and we'll take your gallbladder out tomorrow. But as it turned out, when the second physician palpated the right upper quadrant, there was no pain at all. And he didn't have pain with breathing, but he did have pain when he yawned or sneezed. And so CT scan was done, was showed a saddle embolus PE, and he was anticoagulated and did fine. Thoughts on this guy?
0: Um, My guess is that, although I tend to to be wrong in these, that there was no lawsuit uh, primarily because there's no negative outcome. Um, The idea of giving warfarin therapy is to prevent the next clot and the body's process of lysine clots was not accelerated by warfarin or by heparin so so because there's you know he didn't drop dead um i think that it would be hard to claim that you they were harmed by the delay in this diagnosis
2: you know i'm i'm not a smart guy like rick i mean things are have to be sort of simple for me If I saw somebody who a a day or two or three or four uh, earlier had had an orthopedic procedure in the lower extremities, the first thought I have in my head is pulmonary embolus. Why? Because that's what I see. Um, I I wouldn't be smart enough to think that they had a gallbladder disease. I would think embolus first, and I think that's the sense that he's sending to me. What I'm sensing is he probably didn't have much in the way of damages, but I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't report this doctor to the to the board of medicine uh, because, like he says, uh, this is the major complication following an orthopedic procedure. And I got the sense that this is a pretty precise guy, uh, you know, a numbers guy, a precision guy,
1: and I think that's what he did in this case. I didn't really include it in the recording, but he told me that the way that he practices, that he knows his clients, and he was upset at the surgeon that the surgeon said to him, You know, I don't remember your record. I'd have to check that. And that the surgeon was so imprecise pending removal of his gallbladder that. He was comparing this with his own thing. I know that people have compared the practice of medicine with airplane pilots and all that kind of stuff. And I think there's always that, that difference between those, but still the mind of the patient, that perception still persists. The other thing I think is really interesting about this case is we talked about some of the risk of CT with radiation on the previous case. Well, how about the risk of a false positive? Because this is the quintessential case. This guy actually had a gallstone, Five years previous, they did a CT, they saw the same gallstone and attributed his symptoms to it without asking him, is your pain worse with greasy foods? Do you have pain with palpation the right upper quadrant? They saw a gallstone, said, we've got a diagnosis and stopped prematurely evaluating that patient. So in one sense, they did more testing, the CT scan, and it ended up in one way potentially invoking great harm on the patient.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. That sometimes we look for the convenient answer, even when it doesn't fit.
0: Although yeah. you know, we know that cholecystitis or bouts of cholecystitis can uh, follow um, all kinds of operations, and they don't. Um, and we don't know actually how careful this examination was to suggest that this is the uh, diagnosis. Um, there's nothing about, we weren't told anything about whether an examination was done that indicated there was at least initially tenderness in the right upper quadrant. And the idea of fatty foods, honestly, that that doesn't apply to the vast majority of people who have
1: uh, gallstones, and I can tell you that from my personal experience as well. <laughs> well, at least asking yeah. the question. I think that uh, if you are going to diagnose Chole cystitis or cholelithiasis symptomatically, you at least have to go a little bit further to ask some of those questions specific to that diagnosis. Now, whether all those will be positive or not, you know, the question is: is did this physician, after they saw the CT scan with the gallstone, prematurely stop the evaluation and discharge the patient? At least in the patient's perception, that's what happened. Because the other thing here is, is
0: that um, usually saddle embolisms are very symptomatic. There's a tachycardia, there's, they're blocking up lots and lots of blood kind of thing. And so this this history doesn't really sound consistent
1: with such a nasty uh, embolism. Right, right, exactly. So let me do this. Let me play the second half of the interview. This actually is a little shorter, but saying what he decided to do. We'll see if Greg's right. You you're upset about the care you received to the point that you took some action.
4: Well, I was upset that that, it would, that, that to me, in, in, in speaking with other people, and, and again, when, when Dr. Weinstock came in, I mean, he didn't even hesitate. It was like, boom. And it was so obvious that it at that least had to be considered that it upset me. And then to understand that the second physician, the guy who would do the, the laparoscopic surgery, was oblivious didn't even seem to care. You know, he came into the hospital when I was in the hospital and, and you know, that next morning and was speaking to me and he said, Well, gee, we've done surgery. And I asked him just straightforward, Did you look at the t-? And his answer, I must have. I must have. And when the client comes to me and I'm looking at the thing, I know if I've looked at what they're doing, he knew and he didn't look. So I was really upset with that, so I found out how how do I complain, and I wrote a complaint to the medical board, the Ohio Medical Board, voiced my complaint that it was, I thought, malpractice. They both upset me, but the second guy was the guy who was going to kill me.
1: Just speaking about the emergency physician, what do you think they could have done at the initial visit that would have prevented you from making a report when they found the diagnosis was incorrect?
4: I don't know what where her mind was at the time, but she was off base, and I don't think that's right. I think something as serious as a blood clot directly after surgery, four weeks after surgery, okay, it should have been forefront. That would have been the first thing that I think. After I've done done you know some research and talked to other people, that was the first thing. It was not accidental that the second doctor shot came in and didn't even hesitate and said, I think you have a blood clot." Why did you say that? I think the first doctor, you know, I don't know how good she is, but she wasn't very good that day.
1: So there you have it. I, I sort of put that in there. I actually know about this patient because I saw him on the second visit. And I have actually reviewed the initial visit, uh, had an extensive review of systems, but there's very little in ability to follow the case through. Now, I will say that this guy rewrote history a little bit if you remember i initially asked him when the first physician saw you did you think everything seemed kosher and he said yeah seemed like a standard visit i got a gallstone i went home with that diagnosis later when he went back somehow either by his own research on the internet or talking to friends all of a sudden now it's obvious this should have been considered this pulmonary embolism so it's interesting how his his opinion of the initial visit changed after he knew what his actual diagnosis was. There's a good case of a twenty twenty hindsight.
0: And um, the second doctor always has a leg up on the first doctor in these cases. And, um, you know, we don't know specifically what the first doctor did to feel comfortable that cholecystitis was the diagnosis. But um, uh, we, so it's, it's hard to blame the first doctor, I think, especially... When you look at charts, charts are created to be self-serving. You don't make a chart that is inconsistent with your uh, diagnosis. I mean, everybody knows that. So it's very difficult to look at charts and find out that unless you're looking at things like vital signs, vital signs are kind of immutable. But all of the other parts, the subjective parts, um, make it very difficult to review charts and say, oh, geez, you really missed this one.
2: So what happened when the physician was turned into the medical board? Don't keep us in suspense here, Mike.
1: He told me that he wrote a letter and the medical board wrote back, thank you for your interest and your comments, and that was the last time he ever heard of it. And I actually know the first two physicians, but I have not specifically asked them if there was any... Action against them, my guess is that there wasn't they never had this guy come downtown and interviewed him about the experience that sort of thing they might have the medical board might have reviewed the initial record and thought it was acceptable or 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 met reasonable standard of care, if not excellence in care. so nothing as far as I know happened to either first two physicians okay that 's very strange though. I think that uh, depending on the state that you 're in.
0: Some of these medical boards are very, very aggressive regarding uh, the evaluation of physician complaints. New York State is one of them. California is one of them. And um, the, yeah, the, New the, York
2: is not aggressive. They're draconian. And the fact they're unbelievable.
0: The, and yeah. the fact that this person did not even receive something back from the medical board saying we've read the case, etc., is really, really, uh, I think, unusual. And I think, frankly, the patients should say, I expect a response from the medical board. You can say it was great care or or poor care, but I
1: expect some kind of response. Greg, you have some pretty specific thoughts on uh, the action that medical boards take.
2: Well, the the unfortunate part of medical boards is that they are political as well as medical. And so in certain states, obviously, the one that I'm most familiar with is the actually the state of New York because I've had to go defend emergency physicians there uh, who are having their licenses pulled for ridiculous things, unbelievable things. And I think at a certain point in time, you have uh, lawyers on those boards, you have lay people on those boards. It's a medical question. And, it, and uh, certainly uh, I'd rather go to the Medical board in the state of Montana or the state of South Dakota than in California or New York and the reason is they feel that there's a political necessity to be tough on doctors now unfortunately, it never picks out the ones who really need to go to the board um, but it but at least my experience has not been a happy one with regard to some of the issues they bring up and they have amazing power because when they decide to lift your license for a year or two, uh, you've essentially taken away a, phys- a physician's uh, mechanism to support themselves, and it puts a black mark, which is very tough to overcome if you move to another state.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, hard, hard, it's hard to pick which, which you'd prefer, a report to the medical board or report to a plaintiff attorney.
0: Well, I guess right. in, in the state of Ohio, I would prefer
1: a complaint to the medical board. Yes, I would
0: at this yeah.
1: point, too. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right, case number three. This one is uh, a lot shorter and a little more obvious, but I think is an interesting, uh, it will, be, will involve a little bit of interesting discussion also. So there's no uh, decision in the middle. I just play this thing straight through. It's about a minute and a half. Here we go. I had fallen and cut my head open in I had went into the uh, emergency room to get to
5: care of, and uh, I had a split from the top of my forehead down into my eye, and he said He uh, actually sewed it up so all the way down my forehead. He just uh, he put like thirteen staples in my uh, forehead. When I went into the ER, I was intoxicated at the time. Yeah, I almost felt like he felt like I deserved what I was getting, you know. To the hospital, I appeared in the emergency room. I had had to get the staples stuck out. I was informed that uh, there should have been staples put in my forehead. The whole thing should have been so up.
1: When you went to the second ER, did you have any suspicion that something was wrong? I had no suspicion whatsoever
5: that, that anything him putting staples in my forehead was wrong or nothing. You know,
1: you go to the doctor, you just assume they know what they're doing. Who told you that? uh, It was an
5: intern in there, but I don't remember his name. Felt like he could get himself in trouble, I'm sure.
1: So when you got the staples taken out, you had a scar on your forehead.
5: Yeah, I still got a huge scar on my forehead. I thought it was a pretty unfair settlement. You know, I've had some DUIs, and they tried to bring that, they tried to downplay my personality. I I think I ended up somewhere around $10,000. I mean, it was it just come down to the just drug out and drug out till finally I just I was needing money. I I just felt that he just didn't want really to take the time and I don't know why he could slow stuff around my eye but just couldn't have went ahead and you know if it would have made my face look a lot better, just because I'm the best looking guy that I still flooring and, and I have to see people every day. So I'm pretty much stuck with wearing a ball cap and pulling
1: it over the skull on my on my forehead. So this is a guy that went into the ED, he was inebriated and he had a big gash on his forehead. So they put some stitches around his eye, but they stapled the forehead and he thought everything was fine. He went to get the staples removed and saw actually a physician assistant at the second ED who told him, boy, they should never put staples in here. And because of that, he found an attorney and unfortunately they couldn't really go too far. He had 30 DUIs and they thought that that went really play well for a jury so they needed he needed some money and and they settled and he got around $10,000 well,
2: well kn- I'll tell you what $10,000 is that isn't even the cost of of uh sending the case out for review by experts so i mean that's uh uh for the hospital for the financial people that's a that's a win for them because it's almost no money at all. But the reason this guy sued was obviously he felt like, uh, justice had been denied him because of his other medical problem, which is alcoholism. Right. And there's no question that emergency physicians get into the mindset that, well, you deserve it. You bastard, um, sit down, shut up, and we'll take care of you. By the way, A comment by some physician assistant saying you shouldn't have done it that – they shouldn't have done it that way is like throwing gasoline on a fire. I have no idea why they did that because you notice he said before he walked in there, he had no perceptions or or conceptions that it had been
0: done incorrectly. Well, it's amazing how um, careless – people can be, it's like they have never had any insight into the ramifications of the criticism of other physicians. And in this case, I agree, this $10,000 was basically, you know, a here, take it, go away, thank you very much. But I think if this was really, really litigated, uh, it would be difficult to prove that, you know, staples is uh, malpractice Uh, it might not be the ideal way to close a forehead laceration but I think it would be hard to say that this is malpractice and um, so I think that this is a settlement that was just a convenience to get the thing out of people's hair and um, that's about it but clearly people who work in emergency departments need to understand that loose lips sink ships, and that... Oh,
2: I've heard that, yes. <laughs> and, that,
0: <laughs> and that they need to be taught it. Uh, they need to be actively taught it. You just can't, under, you can't depend on the fact that, well, good judgment says not to criticize other doctors. Good judgment is uh, not as common as we'd like to believe. So I think that, frankly, um, somehow, you just can't be let loose in an emergency department and being uh, free to say whatever you think is appropriate because um, you're not educated in terms of the dangers of what you may be saying.
1: Yeah, I think that this is an interesting case in the sense that this guy had no thought that anything wrong had occurred until he went to the second ED to get the staples taken out. And that was when that idea got put in his mind.
2: I can't tell you the number of cases I've done where – Someone will say, oh, the other doctor thought they should have done this or that, particularly the family doctor. They went to the emergency department and says they didn't do a CBC. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. Uh, It's amazing what is said behind our backs in other settings or what the patients hear uh, as being said in other settings that uh, can trigger unhappiness with these people now I'm sure a lawyer looked at this case and said there's gonna be no jury of tax-paying citizens who want a guy with thirty-one DUI's I mean the jury may want him taken out and hung (laughs) Uh, so you know I I think these people are a menace to society and uh, it does need to be stopped so I, I think he'd be very he would be an unsympathetic person to the jury and uh, you don't know if they're intoxicated, as we've all been through this, where sewing them up, doing a nice plastic job, is damn near impossible because of the way they're acting. And uh, the smart ER doc would note that on his chart. Uh, patient on cooperative, moving the head, doing this and that. And I've had these people where they basically insisted they didn't want stitches, they didn't want this or that. Uh, this is not... Uh, your poster child for uh, for malpractice. I promise you that.
1: Well, we know all the things that patients say about what their perception, we've talked about that today, with what their perception of the initial visit was and for the second provider, I think, to go through things and say, oh, that first doctor screwed up or shouldn't have done this. Out of the context of how that patient presented, the flow and the ED at the time, it is, it seems to me, irresponsible. Of course, sometimes malpractice occurs, but I don't really think it's our job. We're physicians. We're not attorneys. It's not our job to tell the patient that they had malpractice occur to them.
2: Let me tell you the worst of this I saw when uh, I was attending many, many years ago at the University of Michigan Hospital. And one of the surgical residents said to a family of, uh, I don't know, eight or nine-year-old boy with appendicitis, because they'd been someplace else two days earlier. And he says, oh, they couldn't even tell appendicitis over there at that hospital. I hauled him outside and <laughs> tightened his tie to the point where the knot was going to choke him. I said, you never make a statement like that. You know what? You have a two-day advantage on the other hospital. Yeah, now he has rebounding gardening. Okay? Now any idiot can figure it out. Uh, I think that there are casual comments like this that get floated around which they have no business happening. If you think there's something wrong, have that discussion with your director uh, in a closed room to see if we need to take an action to correct it. But to make casual comments, I think, is a fireable offense.
0: Well, you know, one of the things I see and have seen is that some family physicians are very uh, pro-emergency department and others have a chip on their shoulder regarding the emergency department in that they think, well, you order too many tests. Da, 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 da. And um, I think that the physicians who are pro the emergency department are generally not going to make disparaging remarks. But I think there are physicians who have a certain bias hmm. about emergency medicine that is negative, And I think that they are the ones who may be inclined to, you know, be the Monday morning quarterback and uh, criticize the uh, uh, emergency department i think one of the things that people should do where possible is do some of the things that you know greg that neil has brought up in the past neil little it, it's the idea of the preemptive strike and i think you've mentioned that as well so that if you decide not to do a, a a blood count and you think that somebody might say well why didn't they do a blood count you can say well here's the reason we're not doing this or as an example many times uh, with a clavicle fracture, people used to use figure of eights, and the literature says uh, sling is just as good. So you tell the patient, some doctors would put a, a, a different figure of eight dressing on you. However, um, we're not going to do that because they're more uncomfortable, and the literature says that a sling is just as good. That way, you've deflated any Monday morning cord back that says, why didn't they give you a, a figure of
1: eight? Well, that's a great example. Yeah, that's a great segue to the, the two questions that we started this program out with. And and that's, you know, how are we going to identify patients who might sue and, and what are we going to do before they leave the ED? And to, I think, have that preemptive strike sort of really goes to the heart of what we're looking at here. Communication is something we can do something about. we can't really do something about misdiagnosis of course except be better doctors but hopefully we're trying to be the best doctors we can at all at all times but communicating to the patient I give a very standard stump speech about just for example abdominal pain and I'll tell a family we don't really know for sure what's going on and in fact only a little secret of the ER only 40 percent of the time can we give you a definite diagnosis of what is going on but we can hopefully almost all the time, though nothing's 100%, tell you what's not going on. And I don't think these bad surgical life-threatening things are going on at this time. And then I'll go through the thing. You can imagine a patient who comes in with nausea that it'd be very difficult to diagnose appendicitis until eight or 12 hours later when you have pain down in the right lower abdomen, and then it's obvious. So I oftentimes do that preempt strike to the patient to tell them that we don't really know what's going on right now, but these are the specific things. And I think if you look at the number of patients you see in your shift, maybe it's three an hour, so 25, 30 a day, maybe it's two or three patients that there's that amount of diagnostic uncertainty could be that problem. Taking an extra minute or two to explain to the patient at that time and then recording in the chart what you explained to them, I think goes a long way towards what are gonna eventually be problems with the 150,000 patients we see in our careers.
0: Although I have to admit- Uh, I'm a little concerned about how you say, we don't know what's wrong with you.
2: I never start with that. I
0: never open with that. Because, you know, a patient expects that you will be more positive about um, statements. So I think that, you know, the approach is very subtle here in terms of instilling confidence to the extent that you can while being non-definitive with regards to the diagnosis i think that people want a diagnosis doctor what's wrong with me and i think that you need to carefully construct your story about is particularly like in an abdominal pain about um how you go
1: about that well here's a good question so of people with gastroenteritis because that does occur commonly they've got some vomiting diarrhea their kids sick you know one in a thousand one in two thousand a certain percentage are actually going to turn out to be something how do you uh, – what would be your stump speech where you say to the patient, hey, look, we think this is gastroenteritis, but watch out for these things specifically because we haven't 100% excluded X, Y, and Z.
2: What, what I always do is I want to tell them what I do know first. I want to give them the positive first. I've got good news. Your abdomen does not look surgical at this moment. We know this. We know that. Now. Here's the area of uncertainty, and this is how we're going to follow it up. It's, it's not that I'm so dumb that I don't know. It's I'm so smart that I know that we don't have to operate on most of these people, but it could change. And, and I think that the, the key word in patient interaction is, is candor. I think if you lie to them, you'll never get... Uh, their respect uh, in, in future visits. If you tell them the truth, here's what we do know. These are the possible courses, and this is what we're going to do. It has to sound like you have a diagnostic plan, which has worked in the past and is going to work for them. I mean, I think most people understand that there is a progression of time with disease, and I, if if you if you level with them about this, I think they will. They will respect it and uh, respect you for it.
0: Yeah, I think the idea of putting a time into the statement is very helpful. At this point in time, we don't see any evidence of a serious surgical condition. Your urine test is normal. Your blood count is normal. However, these things can change. And so I think that the idea of inviting people to come back to the emergency department if there is any new or worsening symptoms and to come back immediately is kind of the safety net underneath that. It kind of allows for an evolution of this condition, which may get better or it may get worse. But it's very clear that if anything new or uh, new is happening or uh, anything is getting worse, I want you to come right back.
1: Well, the last thing I want a patient to do is to go home thinking that they have a certain benign diagnosis, and then when their concerning symptom occurs, to say, well, the doctor told me it's just this, I'm going to keep taking my Vicodin or Percocet, this type of thing. And we actually uh, have, have cases like that with poor outcomes where the return visit was delayed because that first doctor was so definitive in their diagnosis.
2: You know, I had no... I had an old physician who once told me, uh, Greg, as, you're, as you progress in the, in the career, three things will happen. Number one, um, you're going to become more skeptical and more conservative about all therapies. Number two, you're going to start to see more and more of less and less. And uh, lastly, the diagnosis of appendicitis will be just as confusing as it was on day one. <laughs> and I think there uh, there is some truth uh in those statements
1: Well, if I could um close that out, I came up with a little list of ways when patients come back when patients come back of ways to hopefully avoid actually the dreaded double bounce back, and some of the things are things we've spoken about, I think sitting down when you take the history first visit or second visit really gives the impression that you have the time to listen to the patient, thanking them for returning, somehow substantiating their decision to come to the ED. I think asking the main reason for their visit, sometimes all the back noise of all this eight or 10 positive view of systems, you know, what is the thing that caused you to get off the couch at three o'clock in the morning, get in your car and drive to the ED? What's the main reason that you decided to come in? repeating a history back to the patient, make sure that they know that you've actually heard them and it allows them the opportunity to correct any inaccuracies. And then making sure that the documented complaints are evaluated. For example, we found frequently the nurse gets the diagnosis in the triage note, the doctor never sees it or appreciates it. And I think that, again, telling the patient when they leave, and I think what what you guys said is is actually a good, good idea. You know, this is likely what's going on. However, and as Greg has said many times, an action and time specific discharge plan, if these things happen or any other concerning things, and not have the ten page discharge instructions that that Rick hates and, and we all should hate, these are the things that you need to return for, and we're happy to see back any time. Goes a long way towards, I think, avoiding problems in the future. Yeah, we've talked yeah, about I- we've
0: talked about this in the past, but I get very <clears throat> nervous about Saying follow up with your doctor if you're not getting any better. I think that, um, you know, the doctor may be on vacation, somebody takes the call in the office and said, okay, we can see you in two days. Um, I think that those patients are our patients, and that if we saw them for some episode of care and things are getting worse or um, new symptoms are developing. I feel much, much more comfortable saying, come back to the emergency department. We're hoping 24 hours a day we'll reassess.
2: I guess the only other comment I'd put on this is uh, I'm a, a big conflict resolution guy, and I, I'm a, a devotee of uh, Morton Deutsch. He came up with a phrase that every one of us uses, and that is win-win. The win to the patient is he's feeling somebody's cared about what's happening and will take care of them. The win to you is you've put them in such a situation that if there is a change, they'll come back. And if you focus on that win-win, I think it's hard to lose on these cases.
0: One other point I would make about my approach to these cases about having them come back to the ER is that you potentially can get into a little trouble with the family physicians um, if they kinda know, know that that's what you're encouraging rather than having them uh, follow up with the family doctor. But I feel personally that these patients, are our patients, for the, uh, at least for the time being, and I don't necessarily feel comfortable um, passing them on to uh, the family doctor if it may be something that is um, serious or important. I'm fine with them following up with the family doctor. With a, um, yeah, you got a gallstone, and that's probably what it was. And you better follow up because you may need it taken out. That's a, that's a you know that's a different story.
1: So where do we go from here, Mike? Uh, I think that's the uh, that's sort of the summary of the of the of the topic that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I, I think we pretty well covered it.
2: Okay, Rick, uh, wine of the month this month. Uh, We're now going to move from Sonoma and Napa and those kinds of areas down to the central coast of California, which has some great wineries. By the way, central coast is usually referred to as those areas starting about 60, 70 miles north of Los Angeles, heading up toward Big Sur to about uh, 40 or 50 miles south of uh, San Francisco. Uh, There are some great wines, and one I want to turn you on to is the Curtis Winery. They have a 2008 Heritage Cuvée, uh, which is a fantastic red wine for 18 bucks a bottle. They have a 2010 Heritage Blanc, uh, which I think is a great wine. Uh, Santa Barbara County is where both of these are grown. Again, 18 bucks a bottle ranks with, is scored with the fifty and sixty dollar bottle French wines for eighteen bucks curtis winery you can't beat them
0: cool thanks very much uh greg and mike uh thanks for putting this case these cases together for us much appreciated and thanks. um let's sign off and we'll talk with uh, everybody next month bye goodbye